Look, Sylvia, instead of Friday, could we make it Thursday night? Thursday? Well, that's the Untouchables with Bob Stack. Welcome to the Magic Lantern Podcast, an ongoing informal discussion of the films we love and the things we love about them. I am Erica Long. And I am Cole Rolaine. Each episode of the Magic Lantern will be devoted to one film that we alternately select and we will discuss why it is significant to us. We are at the first episode of the new year, that is episode 66, which is Erica's choice. Let's find out what she has in store for us. Happy New Year to you and everyone. Thank you, and the same to everyone out there listening. I have chosen to ring in the New Year, or a ring-a-ding-ding in the New Year, The Apartment from 1960. Directed by Billy Wilder, co-written with his collaborator I.A.L. Diamond, with Jack Lemmon, Shirley MacLaine, and Fred McMurray. Office drone C.C. Baxter trades his soul and his apartment to his philandering bosses, in exchange for a leg up in the corporate world, and begins to question that choice as his feelings deepen for elevator girl Fran Kubelik. Now, I've only seen this a couple of times, and I think it's the same for you. You've maybe seen it one more time than me. Are you, like I am, always immediately taken by surprise by the fact that it's in black and white? Do you assume this is going to be in color? It feels immediately much more Tennessee Williams when I realize, wait a minute, This is black and white all the way. No, it doesn't feel the same to me. And I'll tell you why. Because the very first time I saw this with my mom was on a VHS copy. And I think that was the moment when I registered aloud to her, this is in black and white. And it was from 1960. That was still a thing that I was understanding at that point, that it was basically a choice. Though, of course, with some of the themes in it, I think you could be forgiven for thinking this is going to get melodramatic. I think it might just be that I associate it with such festive holidays. I think Christmas, I think New Year's, even though the film itself is a little bit on the bleak side for some of it, it's that colorfulness that I expect because of the time of year and the celebrations associated. I feel like that festiveness that you might feel is going to happen is undercut right away with that voiceover from C.C. Baxter, played by Jack Lemmon. He establishes the world for us, and it is a working world. Speaking of establishing this world, how well-established a voice was Jack Lemmon for moviegoers at this point? Do you remember? Is that a voice that they would have immediately recognized in 1960? He had been working for a while at that point, and Some Like It Hot came before this, so I think that established him in our minds. But not in that same well-known, respected voice that, say, Walter Houston had where you would think everybody in America surely knows who Walter Houston is. Which now is exactly the opposite these days. Cece introduces us to his world of consolidated life, which I absolutely love the name of that. It's this corporate world that he lives and slaves away in. And we have what I think of as that man in the gray flannel suit era, where you have the gigantic room full of desks. It feels like Brave New World or 1984 for me. Did Billy Wilder have something in for insurance companies? He sure seemed fixated on them for a little bit. He certainly seems to have it in for the corporate world because everyone is treated and looks like and kind of acts like cattle in this scenario. And just to give you a little bit of context, when Cece is talking about this American ingenuity and what it has built, 
General Electric, which is where my grandfather worked for most of his adult life, in 1955 employed 210,000 people. IBM at the same time, 46,500 people. So we have these behemoth corporations existing. And at that same time, we have the building of the Pan Am building, which was the world's largest commercial office space. So I think people at the time could definitely relate to this kind of world. Relate their own experience or relate aspirationally? Because in 1960, I don't think the majority of the concentration of the population were in these large urban centers. Which leads me to the first big question about the main theme of this film. If urban loneliness is the thrust of this and dealing with the consequences of that, how does this turn out to be so well regarded and so popular among what had to be a large contingent of people in the viewing audience that did not know anything about living this way? These circumstances of living by yourself in a one-room apartment, granted right off of Central Park for $85 a month, which still, if you adjust for inflation, blows my mind that you can afford this as a drone. But what do you think it is if you say that people are seeing themselves in this? What exactly is relatable? I think that that is a great point because it wasn't as though the audience was solely composed of other men who worked in an office. And then I think that that's where the other idea of the film for me comes in, which is about the choices that you decide to make and what you aspire to and what you decide you're going to give up on either in other people or yourself in order to make those choices. I do think, though, that even if these people in the audience weren't in an urban setting, they can also appreciate that feeling of being the underdog, even though maybe that's the choice that you've made, when you are put upon by whomever it is that is above you. Is the other thing that they are relating to that, quote, happily married trope, unquote, as well? Because I'm sure that that idea is one that does not have geographical boundaries. The thing that he was satirizing so savagely. People in 1960, whatever their gender being, beginning to decide that this idea that they've been fed is a complete line of garbage and watching men be exposed for who they actually are and have it not be funny or laughable that they are creating these affairs, though, of course, just like nowadays, somebody in there is laughing at exactly that same idea. Well, as savagely as he ripped the idea apart, it certainly didn't kill it. You're right, because even in, say, 1980, when I was 10 years old and reading Beetle Bailey comics for the first time and the trope of the general chasing the secretary around the desk, that exact mindset from that time frame, it was clearly still alive and thriving. I do think it's no accident that C.C. is a schnook. We hear him described that way by other people. He finally accepts that for himself as well. And so Wilder and Diamond have created a character that has bought into this hook, line, and sinker. And for that reason, I've always felt that it was okay that I didn't particularly like this guy, even though he's played by the hardest working man in film, Jack Lemmon. Well, he's a schnook. You don't necessarily like him. I don't necessarily like him. I don't know if Billy Wilder necessarily liked him. I do have a question about him, though. Why, after observing the things that he observes and being a participant in this thing that is going on in his apartment, would he aspire to be, quote, happily married, unquote? Why does it turn out to be something that he wants for himself if all he's seen of it is this bitter take on it? 
Maybe you should explain the setup, I guess, before we go into that question. But with that in mind. Got it. So we established that, and I'm putting air quotes around this, this is the way the world works, which is something that you and I both despise whenever that trope is employed, that these men bosses, of course, they're all men, they have peccadilloes rather than tawdry, gross affairs. And I think first and foremost, it doesn't come actually until much later that CC is all about the job, having this established position of respect and power and some more money that would all be great, rather than he's not looking for the white picket fence right away. At least that's not how I read it. I think much later on, as the events start to unfold, and there's specifically that scene where he's talking about feelings he had at one point for his best friend's wife, that's really the first time where it starts to seem like that might be something that he is also aspiring to. And yet even then, the most memorable relationship in his life could have only been consummated with an extramarital affair and ended with him taking a bullet in his leg. For now, though, he is absolutely fine with being told when it's okay for him to go home. He has allowed his bosses to use his apartment for their, uh, I'm not, shouldn't say the word out loud, their crash pad, essentially, but to conduct these affairs. I also did like, because I didn't grow up this way, that his New York neighborhood is very much established as a Jewish one. It's a community place. Jewish ladies for his landlord, for his neighbors, his Jewish doctor friend. They speak Yiddish. And at that point, Mishagos was something I had never heard before. And I think that that establishes him very much as an outsider, as a misfit as well. Again, of his own choosing. So it's into this apartment that we get to learn a little bit more about him. I see a sink for one, an oven for one, a fridge for one, a table for one, cheers for one, a TV dinner. Everything is shrunk down to his size and yet all of these other people are making their way into his life and taking up every corner of it. I like here in this moment, and then in a couple of other moments throughout, all of these meta-references to Billy Wilder's other work, like Greta Garbo and Marilyn Monroe. He strikes me as someone who's extremely incomplete and does not know what he wants. And I don't mean to suggest here that romance or marriage is what he needs to complete him. I don't think that that's necessarily it either. So I repeatedly find myself asking, what is all of this in service of? Why does he want to climb this corporate ladder? Why is he willing to sell his soul this way? What will it get him but a slightly bigger paycheck, a slightly bigger, still lonely apartment? What do any of these people want, ultimately, is what I'm left with when we get to the end of the whole thing. I like Billy Wilder for always focusing on strivers, whether that be good or bad. I don't get it either. I don't understand the purpose of making slightly more and having a slightly different title. I can't appreciate the idea of moving from the vast open room that's nothing but a sea of desks, even to get a tiny bit of glass and a tiny door between you and everybody else. What motivates you or I to do that, though, is different than what motivates him. We would want it so we'd be left alone, not because of our name being on the door and the respect that that title supposedly affords you. We are not seeing that as a move up, we are seeing that as a move away from everyone else. That's very true. I think then it's much more about upward mobility as something that is becoming ingrained in one's soul. 
And that is its own true purpose. You have to think where all of these characters that he's made have come from to get a sense of where they are going is the idea that they constantly have. And then when he finally has the idea of just be a mensch, that becomes a new and better purpose. So ultimately, it's using the same power for either good or evil, as it turns out. Because you see that to succeed in the corporate world and to climb that ladder, it's not based on talent or hard work. It is based on you scratch my back, I'll scratch yours. And is not be a mensch just the other side of that coin where you just treat other people the way you would want to be treated? be a good person to everyone and receive that in return. It's just that in the world of the Minch, everyone isn't a repugnant dirtbag. Billy Wilder is never going to write a movie where everyone is all good (laughs) and the angel Clarence comes down and everyone realizes how wonderful an impact they have made on everybody else. And we're all singing together and clasping hands and we're all the richest people in town simply because we're the nicest. That's not what Ace in the Hole was about. No. I think it's also true that Billy Wilder was a prophet because the Sheldrakes of the world are still operating and doing the same thing. As are the Baxters, for that matter. Yeah, ultimately I'm left feeling that no matter what this character achieves, it is hollow. Is that in a sense still a relatable concept? That you don't have to be one of those office drones in an urban industrial setting to see that I know people just like that. I think it's definitely still a relatable idea, just not on the same scale. No matter what type of new, fancy, forward-thinking office you work out of, there will always, always be sycophants. There will always be someone going home to their partner and saying that someone at work is trying to destroy them, as if it were Falcon Crest. (laughs) Which I loved when I was a kid, by the way. So yes, I think these ideas are still completely relatable, it's just a difference in scale. I do work in one of those hip new office places. Is Joan Collins your HR person? No, thankfully. I don't think I've ever actually met any of our HR people, but there's always one person who I swear is wearing swim trunks to work. There's always one person who, whenever there's food out, takes extra portions. Um, That's me. I was going to say, if you didn't out yourself, I was damn sure about to. It's definitely me. I take two bananas on banana day. Well, let's get back to CC again. How about that? And leave all of my personal peccadilloes at work. We next meet Mr. Baxter and Miss Kubelik. That's how they refer to each other. And that's Jack Lemon and Shirley MacLaine. And just a little bit about Sir Hamminess himself, Jack Lemon. I'm not sure how you feel about him as an actor, and I would love you to tell me once I give you a couple of fun facts here. Jack Lemmon was Billy Wilder's favorite actor. He thought he was truly the hardest working person he had worked with. They made seven films together, all told. He described him as a ham, a fine ham, and with ham you have to trim a little fat. Jack Lemmon described himself as being particularly susceptible to the parts that he played. If his character was having a nervous breakdown, he would start to have one. Now, where do you come down on Jack Lemmon as an actor? I am a big fan of 
what he does and it's very limited range. I don't think he has a great deal that he can do, but the thing that he does, he is the absolute best at. That persona is responsible for some of my favorite roles, some of my favorite characters in all of film. In particular, The Odd Couple is the first thing that comes to mind. I think that is perfect. But there are at least a handful of other variations on this character that I think are almost equally as fantastic. If you are just on the other side of that, though, I can definitely see where he is one of those actors where a little bit goes a long way. That very much comes into play for me in the scene coming up here shortly when he has caught the cold and he is trying to manage the schedule for his apartment. But we'll get to that in just a second. I first want to talk about Shirley MacLaine, who is one of my all-time favorites. In part, because from being a very small person watching her, she always had short hair, which I was a huge fan of. I also very much appreciate that the seriousness in her performance really grounds this film for me, because I think that the wordplay can start to separate me from what's happening. Though I love the wordplay, don't get rid of it for sure, but I really like that she comes in to make it all mean something. I also always liked her because she was often described as not very feminine, and that she was very gutsy and very ballsy. Picking up a little bit where Stanwyck left off for Wilder, do you feel like? I think so. I think that's a great point. And that ballsy comment came from Don Siegel, of all people. And if somebody's going to call you ballsy yeah. and believe it, it would be from him. He would know. Well, as much of an asset that I think he is to this, she is truly the secret weapon. When I watch her, in this in particular, but in a number of her other roles, to me, she is one of those Brando-esque actors that is on a completely different level. She's just doing something different than everyone else. And I know it's a little bit about the character in this case, but it's also a little bit of Jack Lemmon too, in that I feel like he can see only exactly what's in front of him. She is looking far into the future. She sees something that no one else on the screen or on the page is seeing. Whether or not that's because she's been reincarnated five or six times, who can say? Topical. She's clearly an old soul. But no, it really comes across that way. And not just here, but in a number of her performances. I'm saving up, I think, my very favorite Shirley MacLaine performance for my next episode, but I'm not going to tell you what it is yet. So we're back at work and back inside Fran's elevator. I really like the relationship that they have because even though I think you're absolutely on target that he only sees what's in front of him, he is perceptive in a specific kind of way. He can sense that she also respects him and he gives that right back to her, which I don't see with any other relationship that he has or any other relationship that she has. Because within the same breath, when he's talking about how she just cut her hair, she gets a slap on the ass from one of these other bosses. But he's already moved on from that point. I know that things are significantly different now, but I'm constantly struggling with trying to figure out how the sexual politics of these workplaces functioned. In particular, the thorny question of some of these female employees who are willing to go along with this, even as far as conducting affairs with these married men in the hopes of, quote, landing the boss, unquote, or receiving a promotion. The particular example that you cite when she's slapped in the elevator, she objects to right away. She immediately says something. But these characters are so gray morally that her other behaviors later on do they undermine that for you? Her protest is somewhat less 
emphatic is less effective when you find out exactly what she is participating in? I think like with most things, the real situation that he was shining a little bit of a light on to the extent that he could or even understood is so much more complex. For example, I have had in my life to laugh off a lot of things that I guarantee you, specifically you, would never have to do. So in doing that, am I enabling that behavior? Am I a victim to that behavior? Am I both at the same time, somewhere in the middle? I'm not just talking about the whole silence equates to approval thing. I'm talking about tacit participation. I still think there's a little bit more to say here. Okay. Because when you look at someone like the character of Miss Olsen, and I love Edie Adams in here, I think she's probably my second favorite. How do we know what any of these people are truly hoping for and what is reality? I think Fran is the most honest person who seems to really understand what the world does to people like her and yet can't or won't help herself. Miss Olsen may have gone into it simply feeling love for another human being, or it could have been to get a paycheck in a different way. I think in these kinds of films, we're allowed to ask these questions, and none of it is made clear for us. Based on the filmmaker that's behind the whole thing, I tend to come down on the side that he is actually indicting all of them in some way or another. I totally agree with you, and I also don't have the same worldview. I truly don't believe that 99% of all people are mercenaries to one extent or another. But maybe I'm being incredibly naive. This may be a bigger question that we can say for the end, but if that is truly how you feel and you are so at odds with that worldview, how is it that you can respond so positively to so much of what Billy Wilder makes? Because it is so completely laced throughout with cynicism and bitterness. I'm going to rely on something that I said completely in a different context on our bonus episode for The Man Who Came to Dinner. Sometimes I just need a break. Sometimes a worldview that was probably forged more by Capra is allowed to take a little bit of a vacation. I also really do appreciate the wordplay and the incredibly clever and interesting writing, and I want to be able to look at things that make me ask hard questions of myself rather than shy away from those things. Even if at the end of the day I come down on, eh, I think that this was a bit more of a biting satire than is necessarily true. Getting back to the action for a second, there's one last moment here that I absolutely love before we get to learn a little bit more about how high the stakes are. Baxter is back in the elevator with Fran and she starts to say, I could tell you stories. And he says, I'd love to hear them. And I really do believe him. And then we're going to get pretty dark again because his blinders are back on. And then we're going to learn more about Fran's personal life. Baxter gets called into Mr. Sheldrake's office, Mr. Sheldrake played by Fred McMurray, another Billy Wilder alum, and he wants to know, he wants Baxter to say out loud what it is that makes you so popular that has all of these other managers talking about you, trying to put a good word in for you, what truly is going on. And when Baxter explains this apartment arrangement, Sheldrake has a bribe for him. Give me a key to the apartment, let me in on this action, and I will get you moved forward. So Baxter agrees. Now at this point, Baxter is ready to ask out Fran, and she explains that she can't go with him right at that moment because 
this old person that she was serious with who wasn't, and now it's kaput. He's been hounding her, asking her to go have a drink with him. Baxter has been given two tickets to see The Music Man that night, and she says, I'll come with you to that. I'll meet you in the lobby. And she goes to keep her date, and we find out it's with Sheldrake. They had a pretty serious thing going on, and it was clearly very serious for her. She still has feelings for him. She's trying to get over it. He's trying to get her back in. And when I refer to, again, that graveness in her performance, this is when she's speaking the truth about how you can kid yourself that you're not going out with a married man, and it is a very ugly thing. All the while, Baxter is waiting at the theater. She doesn't come. And as Sheldrake and Fran are leaving this restaurant, his secretary, Miss Olson, sees them leave. He has said, which seems like a repeat of what he has told her before, that he is ready to get a divorce finally and be with her, which is what she wants to hear. It's at least enough to get her to go out the door with him. Aside from the urban loneliness, the other big issue of the film, and I think the one that affected the public the most, the viewing public, is how central sex is to the movie. There was a certain segment of the population that thought this thing was filthy because it treated it so matter-of-factly. It was bringing things to light that everyone knew were going on, but nothing prior to this had dealt with it so frankly and because of the tone of the satire, apparently so flippantly to some people. So there's that angle of it. But the bigger question for me is, are these hollow conquests, is sex that important to the culture at large that it makes the person with the available apartment in the afternoons into executive material. It makes it so that a young girl will sit and waste months, years of her adult life waiting for something to happen while the boss is essentially just stringing her along to get this thing that he wants on Monday and Thursday afternoons. So I guess what I'm asking you is, is it that filthy? I guess I know your answer. It is if you're doing it right. And B... <laughs> <laughs> is it really so important? Has the importance of it changed in the last 50 years? I think it's fascinating to watch people's eyes widen. And I know mine did as a very young person. When I saw this, I was probably 10. The idea of sex as a driving force, that people could literally be so preoccupied by it that their entire day would be caught up in the scheduling of it, the procuring of it, the having of it, and that in reality, people will lie, cheat, steal, threaten, cajole, lie again in order to get it. I think the most nefarious part of it, though, is in spite of or in addition to what I was saying earlier, that for men, it's a weapon of power, less pleasure, though we see some of that. And for women, it's supposed to be a vehicle to love. Yeah, I don't think for Ray Walston, it's necessarily an instrument of power as much as he's just a good time Charlie. He is. I mean, he's definitely having the most fun. He just needs the place for 45, maybe 30 minutes. And I should say, we talk about how clever the writing is right off the bat early on when they're setting this up. That bit and the whole, will you leave your body to the university? Uh, I think they'll be a little bit disappointed. Two of the classiest dig jokes I've ever heard from Billy Wilder. I think about the different women that we have in this. We've got Fran, who is looking for love and maybe also the love of 
a specific kind of person and a specific amount of security, i.e. wealth. Though again, I don't blame her, really. When you say you don't blame her, are you thinking more about the limited range of choices she had for her own success in that time and place? Yes, and again, where all of these people seem to come from that he writes about so eloquently, if you're living with your sister and brother-in-law, probably sleeping on the couch of their two-room apartment, it might seem really great to think about a life in Connecticut instead. So we've got Fran. I think of her as sex is the vehicle to love, and also I do think that she would feel the most pleasure from it. We've got Miss Olson, who I think has come from one place and landed at another place. And sex for her is an opportunity to upend someone else's life. And then again, we have those other women who just want to have a good time. What the hell's wrong with that? And they're definitely all portrayed to me as the same kind of woman. Kind of blousy, with an accent of some kind. They definitely have less money. Cheap dames. Cheap dames. Specifically in that time of place, categorized as not the kind of girl you take home to mother. Speaking of mom, I think that's the other type that we see that's Baxter's neighbor, specifically the doctor's wife. When you have a mother in the story, she's allowed to be the person who cares about everybody because she's the mother. That's the way I think of it. And so sex enters her life. How? It's a source of annoyance that the neighbor is having it so much. And you have it when you are going to make a baby and that's it. Once a year on your birthday. <laughs> and because they're costumed to look like they just don't care. Or the exact opposite, because all we really see them in are house robes, so it could be They're the dirty, purple dirty grotto birds. in there. Well, speaking of the purple grotto, we're about to see one. Baxter, through all of this, has gotten his wish, and he has been moved up. He's gotten his own office. Sheldrake makes the incredibly gross joke about dames thinking that you're going to leave your wife for them, so we know immediately he's a total liar. And then we have the Christmas party, or another picture of how terrible the world was. You say that, but a whole lot of these people seem to be having a pretty good time. In fact, I made a side note here when we were watching it that I thought just specifically because of this scene that my recommendation was going to be Caligula. I definitely get what you're saying. I do think, though, now in retrospect, when we hear some of these men talk about, well, everybody just had a good time. We were just having a good time. Maybe you were, but probably not everybody was. Though, it's definitely portrayed as a good time there. Yeah, if you say you've never laid eyes on your HR department, I don't think the HR department exists in this building. If it is, it is somewhere in a sub-sub-basement that is nowhere near the 19th floor. Hopefully they're just handing out penicillin afterwards. But it's true. I think I'm injecting a little too much of my 2017 into this. The only people who are not reveling are Mr. Baxter and Miss Kubelik. He forgives her right away for standing him up, tells her, you're tops. Again, I completely believe that he feels this. And then Fran gets a wake-up call, and that's in the form of Miss Olson talking about Shell Drake's methods, spelling it out, the order that she has come in, and there will, of course, be others to follow. And then it's a moment later that Baxter puts together a clue he's been given earlier, a broken compact that he found in the apartment. It's Fran's, so he knows Fran and Sheldrake are a thing. 
this scene with the mirror, it's her best line delivery in the whole film. It makes me look the way I feel because it is split in two when you look at your reflection in it. And now we're about to take this huge turn, which becomes what I deeply love most about this film, and without it, wouldn't be on this podcast. It's that incredibly deep melancholy at the center. Making this realization for Baxter plunges him towards drunkenness. Alone in a bar, he meets up with another woman. But even this melancholy is played with a lot of over-the-top comic relief when it comes to their interaction. Absolutely right. I'm working into it. Sorry. Fran and Sheldrake are at the apartment. She is weeping. He is already with the delay and the divorce talk. She's trying to get him to be honest about himself. She gives him an album as a Christmas present. He gives her cash. She starts to disrobe, and we have one of these alarmingly frank for the audience, I think, moments of sexuality where she specifically says, it's paid for, you might as well take it. Back to Baxter for just a second. What I like about this is we see the person he becomes when he is finally faced with himself, and then the same with Fran. Of the two parallel tracks here, I like hers much better. This is one of those instances where I can see his mannerisms getting in the way a little bit. I like it because it finally feels like he tones it way the hell down. Really? I see it as exactly the opposite almost to me. I think, though, that is probably one of my pet peeves is watching someone play drunk. So I'm looking at it through that filter as well, and I'm already irritated. I totally understand what you're saying. We're going to have to watch it again because it's the moment for me when he's still just alone and we watch him in profile where he's wearing that junior account executive bowler hat. And there's no pretense to have to smile through anything. And then back with Fran, watching her take the toothbrushes out of the glass, fill it with water. We have to know what's coming. Just like with Two Days, One Night, and the thing that it most reminds me of is Mrs. Parker in the Vicious Circle. I will never forget the sound. The only thing that we hear, we don't see it, is the razor going into her flesh. That's in Mrs. Parker in the Vicious Circle, not in the apartment. There is no razor. Absolutely. It wasn't that progressive. Well, I should say there is a razor, but again, it's played a little bit for comedy. In this, she takes pills, and that's the state that Baxter finds her in when he brings back his bar lady to have a little fun for himself. He senses that something is amiss, and he finds Fran in his bed, and he says, I used to like you not realizing that she's unconscious at this point. It was an extremely unlikable moment, that character saying that to her as she is completely senseless. That thing I was saying about only seeing directly what's in front of him, he is clearly in that camp. He is part of the boys club. It's all about him. He has not stopped for a moment to consider how odd it is that she is still in his apartment. Obviously, he is slightly impaired. His judgment is not everything that it could be right here, but... Is that not one of those things where, with those filters removed, the most honest parts of your personality come to the surface? I think it's about to get even more honest as well, because he realizes what she has done. He grabs his neighbor, Dr. Dreyfus. He finds an envelope that she's left behind. And all along, his neighbors have assumed that he was just this party guy. Not that he was essentially renting or pimping out his apartment for other people. And so... Immediately, the doctor feels that she's done this for him, assuming 
She's just another of his girls. And he takes that weight for others in the same way that he's been cleaning up this apartment, whatever it is he finds after all these people. This is another cleanup process. And he doesn't take the weight as a selfless act. It's to keep the party line going. Thankfully, they get her stomach pumped out. They get her through the initial scariest part. And Baxter calls Sheldrake, still trying to handle this all for him. And Sheldrake refuses to come, refuses to leave a message. And then here's where I get gut-punched yet again. Fran overhears this and says, I'm so ashamed. Why didn't you just let me die? What other movie is going to say this? I'm glad that you used the phrase gut punch because that is exactly what this feels like to me as well. And I think one of the great things about how much time they take setting all of this up, letting us get to know these people and what's important to them, it takes a full hour before we get to this point. And without that, I don't think we feel such an impact. If this happens 15, 20 minutes in as an immediate pivotal moment, as the thing that sets up the rest of the story, as opposed to the majority of the story setting up this moment, it really loses something. The amount of time they took makes all the difference in the world to get here. And so when she says, I'm so fouled up, what am I going to do now? And her response to him telling her not to jump out the window, who'd care, is incredibly believable. And she's right. It's indicative of the urban loneliness scene that we're talking about. When you are in a city of 8 million 42,783 people, as Jack Lemmon's opening narration tells us, and yet you are still so completely anonymous and alone. You've lived in Los Angeles, but never New York. Is that right? That's correct. Baltimore, but not New York. Yeah, LA, the biggest city that I've lived in. Which I think is a significantly different feeling, a more spread out and isolated feeling than New York City itself. I've only spent a very little bit of time in New York, and so I can't say exactly what it feels like, but for me, L.A. was incredibly lonely. When I was at work, that's where my friends were. We would spend time together there within those confines, and those were the people that I knew the best because any of those friends lived easily 45 minutes away from me in any direction. So I didn't know my neighbors. I didn't have any family there. So I definitely felt pretty anonymous. So then for you, you haven't lived in a giant metropolis. Austin is the biggest place. And we both tend to be people who don't need a lot of other people. Where do you fall on the whole urban loneliness thing? Do you think it's a myth? I think it's probably over-exaggerated. The living alone part, obviously not. When I was looking at this and I'm looking at some statistics, for example, from 2008... Of the 3,141 counties in the United States, New York County had the absolute highest rate of single resident dwellings, people living alone. It was a startling 50.8%. Over half of everyone in New York County lives by themselves, or at least in 2008 they did. I don't know how different that might be from 1960. I assume it's probably only a little more than it was at that point. It was probably pretty similar. I think this idea of urban loneliness, though, might be overblown when it comes to a city like New York City, because you have the virtues of community there in ways that you don't in what is essentially a loosely connected set of suburbs like Los Angeles, or especially in rural places. You are surrounded by so many people and so many influences that I think some of that 
is a choice. You have countless opportunities to engage. So if you are still feeling that loneliness acutely in a setting like that, I think it's either because that's who you are and you've either chosen to live that way because you prefer it or you just are not equipped in some way to go out and get the thing that you want to solve that problem. I think it cycles around, and I definitely see this in the bookstore, that every 20 years or so, a sociologist puts out a new book about how, oh, we're bowling alone, for instance. That's the most prominent example I can think of from most recent years. But I think it's over-exaggerated to sell books quite often. Now that I look back on it, I think I was a little bit like Baxter in L.A. because I chose, because of cost and the location, to live in Little Armenia. I lived across the street from the Armenian church, next door to the Armenian school, and about two apartment buildings down from the Armenian store. There was definitely a community happening all around me, and I just didn't participate in it. This film is extremely interesting to me in terms of how geography affects our sense of the story. This can occur in a rural setting the same way. And I think that you would probably know that even more than me based on where you're from. It affects it in two ways that are extremely significant, I think. The geography, like I mentioned, that's one thing which we'll get to. But this moral bankruptcy that we see that's at the center of this is almost always portrayed in film, at least from that time period, as a condition of urban living. You never see someone in a rural setting that has sold their soul the same way, unless it is literally a part of folklore like that, like the devil and Daniel Webster, for instance. Rural equals idyllic and peaceful, but that can't always be true. There have to be some people there who feel desperately lonely. And what do they do? They move to the city, where they then fall prey to an entirely different set of conditions that keeps them lonely if they don't somehow change their aspect. The next thing I immediately think of is from Raising Arizona, It Ain't Ozzy and Harriet. But that's the suburbs. That comes after this. I don't think people significantly think of that as a place that they are going to go to quite yet in 1960. Not in large numbers anyway. We just don't feel the same way about the rural geography. We don't feel like it's corrupting. We don't feel like it's claustrophobic, obviously. It's impossible to feel anonymous when you're one of only a dozen people that live in a place. The thing that I love most, and to me exemplifies how different that world is, when you told me about a specific feature in the local newspaper. My great-grandmother would put in the Apache newspaper any time I brought people home to visit with me. When friends came home from college, you could count on their names being in the paper as having visited in the home of Rhonda and Ben Rolaine. But it didn't have to be in the paper because everybody knew it already. It was just a courtesy that she liked to put out there. Now, in these last couple of moments in this scene before we get back to work, Baxter stops Fran from writing a letter to Mrs. Sheldrake and revealing all. Who do you think he is defending by not letting her do that? Is that for his benefit, her benefit, Sheldrake's benefit, Mrs. Sheldrake's benefit? I really do believe him when he says you would feel like a terrible person if you did that. Because she would. She might, but... She's at this point of her evolution where she is going to end up like his secretary, where four years from now, she sure as hell won't feel bad about it. I think at that moment, she would understand what it is that she would wreak upon these other people's lives who didn't ask for any of that, as far as we know. 
Again, maybe I'm being naive, but I do believe him in that moment. I'm not ready to absolve him yet. There are still some things that happen. Good, because he's still a crumb. Yeah, I I don't change my mind about that. But let's get back to work. And as you mentioned, Miss Olson, I want to say one last thing about Edie Adams here. I really cannot describe how much I really enjoy her in this. She works without any sort of embroidery. There's no affect or style. I think she's the person behaving the most honestly. The most like a person and the least like a character, you mean? It's like her naturalness comes from another place. So we're back at work. And Sheldrake fires Miss Olson. Personally, I'm glad that there are people that are somewhere in this point in their evolution like Miss Olson, where for a month's severance pay, I will wreck your entire world. You deserve every bit of it. And those moments again in the screenplay when she talks about how you made me sit there and watch everyone who came after me. And again, like all of these characters, she's made that choice. Which doesn't mean it was an easy thing to do. So that last dagger she gets in, she calls Mrs. Sheldrake to make a lunch date, and we know what's going to happen. Baxter and Fran are back at the apartment. He hasn't let her really come back to work yet. He's still trying to keep her there, keep her recovering. And this is when he talks about his own failed suicide attempt. And an idea that I wanted to pose to you about this purpose that anyone might have. What is driving them? And maybe it's that they've both given up on love. And so all that's left is this paycheck, however you get it. They may feel that, but I don't think they believe in it because they're moved off of that position so quickly and so easily. In their hearts, I don't think that they've given up on it because it comes so readily to them when they're ready to jump back on that horse. They have not put it out of their mind or their heart completely, not by any stretch. This next section is when I'm still not absolving him. And that's when he is still treating Fran as the commodity that she is. He's going back to work and he's going to make an offer to Sheldrake. I'll take her off your hands. He essentially has the same deal right back to Baxter because his wife has fired him. So I'll take Fran. None of these clods get it. Billy Wilder got it. Don't you think? I mean, he's obviously skewering this mindset. This is not him signing on his portrayal of this. This is not Billy Wilder saying, I know this is happening and I endorse this behavior. I'm not entirely 100% on that, but I want to shelve that idea for just a second, if that's okay. Okay. While you're thinking about that, I also want you to think about this nice guy syndrome and If Billy Wilder is complicit and all of these male characters are complicit, is Fran also complicit? Because then you hear her say, why don't I ever fall in love with a nice guy like you? Yeah, why don't you? And she says herself that she's so fouled up, she doesn't know what to do. She's willing to give Sheldrake multiple chances. She does go back to him after this. She talks about being a bad insurance risk when it comes to love. And I definitely don't think she lets herself off the hook, but doesn't come up with a viable answer. If she is as clear-eyed as I give her credit for in these other instances where I feel like she is miles ahead of everyone else, what is it about this one thing that makes it so hard for her to navigate versus everything else? I don't know. Do we want to come back to nature versus nurture? What she came from before, what her examples were, what she has to aspire to? Or does she just have a defective gene in there that says, 
the people that I choose are a direct reflection on me. She's not a saint. She's a living, breathing human woman making terrible choices and hopefully better choices. Well, Baxter takes that bribe once again. He keeps quiet about all of this and gets an even better job. Sheldrake's assistant. We've come to New Year's Eve. He learns that Sheldrake and Fran are back on, but he finally decides to become a mensch. He's going to give up this job and give up the apartment. And Fran also decides to make a better choice and give up on Sheldrake. She comes back to the apartment just in time to hear what she thinks is a gunshot, but is really champagne. And instead of Wilder showing us the two of them ending up together and kissing, I was totally thrown for a loop. We don't see any of that. We've got that famous line, shut up and deal. Which I think is an excellent opportunity for us to have this conversation that I think we have been talking about off the air for a couple of days now, the difference between Wilder's writing and his direction. Which one is superior? Which one do you lean toward? So I was thinking about that a lot when I decided to choose this for this episode and then watch it, which were two different choices. And I don't adore this film. It doesn't change my life. So how does it fit the charter of the show then? If we are talking about the films we love and the things we love about them, how does this end up sneaking onto the list? You know, it started out as, in true The Apartment fashion, I was thinking about what I try to do around holiday time is to find a choice that's fitting. And then I watch it and I realize in any given year, this may not have made it onto the list, but it was really speaking to me for the specific reasons of, I actually don't love Jack Lemon as much in this as maybe other people might. I love Shirley MacLaine in it. I really enjoy the writing. I'm not crazy about the direction, except for the fact that I think that he was great with actors, but in his very specific way. It was speaking to me because of what we've gone through collectively as a nation in 2017. But I want those films that make me ask questions and make me come back to a character that I don't love and don't root for specifically. I relate a lot to what you're saying about on any given year, this might not have turned up on your list because to me, it feels like a bit of a Rorschach test when I watch it. New Year's Eve to me is the most miserable of holidays. I have always hated it for one reason or another. And so having something that sort of embraces the melancholy nature of it to me and the impermanence of things and being honest about that, I'm really fond of that idea. Because I have one last big question about whether or not you think the film feels hopeful. To me, that's the most Rorschach part of the whole thing. Right now, I had a really hard time with this viewing. It left me feeling pretty down for a couple of days, actually. It did the exact same thing for me. I almost thought, maybe I shouldn't do it. But that was the part that I felt like embracing. I don't feel that it's particularly hopeful. I do feel that it is part of a cycle. And that's okay. It will feel truer or more hopeful at other times. There will always be something to find in it, I think. Should I get back to your original question then? Yeah, I'm sorry. <laughs> it's a little bit astray. Billy Wilder, writer or director? I come down on writer. There was only one shot in this that really spoke to me. And that was when he goes to make the call in his apartment. The framing of it was really interesting. The rest of the time I didn't feel 
like I was particularly set on fire by any directorial choices. I thought that the art direction was great and the cinematography is great, but I didn't feel that sense of someone behind the camera really speaking to me. I felt that the person on the page was really speaking to me. It's a 50-50 proposition for me. And maybe because I'm also not just weighing the apartment, but I'm thinking about all the other sterling examples of direction that come from Ace in the Hole or Sunset Boulevard. You're not alone, though. No less a respected leading light, as critic David Thompson said, I remain skeptical about Billy Wilder. And Billy Wilder himself, on his tombstone, no less, proclaimed himself a writer. Well, I guess I can't argue with a man's tombstone. (laughs) It's kind of the final word. Although I do take exception to it when I look at things in this film. The shot you mentioned, especially the placement of her dress hanging on the door like a ghost. It's beautiful. That shot of all of the desks and telephones and typewriters extending into the horizon to a vanishing point, practically. Beautiful. There are a number of things like that in this film. But then you also have that offset by the genius of the scene, not where he's doing all these bits of business necessarily, but when he's scheduling the rotation of the use of his apartment, how perfectly the comedy use of the rule of three is happening in that sequence. A genius bit of writing. The rhythms of it, the way it circles around on itself. So for me, for every one of these instances where there's something visually beautiful or something that's communicated subtly through blocking or specific line delivery, there's also an example of something that is just so well written that there was no escaping how great it was. And he generally refused to allow any sort of ad-libbing. You stuck to the script. Now, he did win an Academy Award for Best Direction for this, also for Best Screenplay. Back to his other work, though, of which I am a gigantic fan. I haven't seen the early stuff, the German and French things. Ninochka was the first film of his that I had seen when we're talking about strictly chronological order. Do you feel like he really hit his stride with Double Indemnity or with the comedies like Ball of Fire, Major and the Minor, or... I think maybe like me, when we're talking about Ace in the Hole that came in 1951, when I look at the list of, say, the next 10 films, I've seen every single one of them. And then it totally dropped off for me until the front page. He certainly fades toward the end, but I can't think of very many that don't, to be fair. For me, that stretch that starts with double indemnity and goes through probably the mid-60s, there are at least half a dozen films in there that are absolute essentials that should go on everyone's list of must-see films. So for everybody saying that he's not exactly a great director, jury's still out, blah. Are you looking at me? Beans. That's what I say to that. Banana oil? Yeah. He obviously has a significant and consistent body of work that you can't just chalk up to, oh, that had some great collaborators, that was lightning in a bottle. No, I don't believe that. I believe he was an excellent director and craftsman as well as a writer. And like most often do, he just sort of tailed off by the time you get to Avanti. That's totally fine. I don't want to undercut those collaborators though, because we've got Charles Brackett first and then IAL Diamond. I mean, my gosh, you can't get better than either of those two gentlemen. So back to this Rorschach test idea, why I ultimately decided to keep it. All of these things that I've been pointing out that I don't really feel are faults necessarily about 
the writing creating a distance, when you have performances like Shirley MacLaine's, like the best moments of Jack Lemmon's and Fred McMurray's when they're allowed to stop moving and just be themselves, you have that incredibly fine script. You have a truly adult story, an adult sensibility. In other movies, when characters hardly ever seem to have jobs, as Roger Ebert said, we're reminded in the apartment that they don't have anything else. We have a complicated romantic relationship at the center. We have deep melancholy, which you know I'm always going to respond to. And you put it all together and you have something very lasting and very true, even though it's an incredibly biting satire. Well, I'm going to piggyback off a thing that you said specifically about adult stories and leapfrog over that into my recommendation, which I also send out as a special dedication to Matt Gasteyer, and it is Midnight Cowboy from 1969. Do you want to give any sort of context to that dedication? It could either be a couple of things. Either that relationship between Joe Buck and Ratso Rizzo is how I see Matt and my relationship, or... It may just be a running joke on one of our online forums. But this was from 1969, directed by John Schlesinger, and stars John Voight and Dustin Hoffman. And it's about a dim-witted and naive young Texan who wants to go to the big city to be a hustler, and hustle he does. It was the first X-rated movie to win an Oscar, which has since been ratcheted down retroactively to an R rating. And it was the first big movie to take on homosexual themes this way that broke so big for a mainstream audience. And it dovetails nicely, I think, with the apartment for a couple of different reasons. You have this urban loneliness that people are struggling to overcome and they are thrown together by their circumstances to forge an unlikely partnership, as well as it being so frank sexually that it outraged a fair number of viewers that went to see each one of these in the theater. I can tell you it blew my mind. I was maybe 12 years old when I saw it. <laughs> I think it. I was the same because I'd heard so much about it and it was sort of forbidden fruit, I think. I watched it with my mom. <laughs> As I did so many of these things. Thanks, mom. But at any rate, you have in both of these films a pair of somewhat lost souls, though one pair is significantly darker than the other, thrown together navigating this urban maze. And another thing I like thinking about in this context of comparing and contrasting with the apartment is what a difference a decade makes when you go from 1960 to 1969. Keeping with the theme, I like to think of the apartment ringing in the new year that is the 60s and Midnight Cowboy definitely closing the door on those things. And what about you? What's your recommendation? First, I actually thought you were going to recommend Chunking Express. We'll have to get that one in as a recommendation or do an episode on it at some point. That one deserves a full episode all its own. I stuck with Jack Lemon for my recommendation because, as I mentioned, I'm going to do Shirley MacLaine for my next episode. So in the meantime, I went to Glengarry Glen Ross from 1992, directed by James Foley. Adapted by David Mamet from his play with Al Pacino, Jack Lemmon, Alec Baldwin, Ed Harris, Alan Arkin, and Kevin Spacey. What made me think about it was, again, reading over some Roger Ebert, and he suggested watching The Apartment and Days of Wine and Roses and Glengarry in one experience. He's terrific here as Shelley Levine, one of the real estate salesmen who have been told that if they don't make the sales that they need to, 
everyone will be fired except for the top salesman. And if for nothing else, it inspired the Gil Gunderson character on The Simpsons, which is my all-time favorite. This is one of my favorite litmus tests. Is this person into this movie for all the wrong reasons movies? Because there are decidedly two camps that love Glengarry Glen Ross. Here's what I think of as one of the camps. The wrong reason camp. The people who love the boiler room. That is exactly where I'm going. It is the douchebag outing triumvirate. If your DVD collection consists of Glengarry Glen Ross, Boiler Room, and Boondock Saints, you're a total douchebag. It's how we always know. It's true. So once again, that's two great recommendations, Midnight Cowboy and Glengarry Glen Ross. And that brings us to the end of episode 66. Right off the bat, I want to say a special thanks to everyone who took to Patreon to help support the show since our last episode. Jane Sankner, Melissa Engelman, Matteo Boscarol, and Aaron West, thank you so much. We really appreciate it. If you haven't taken a look at our Patreon, you can see that at patreon.com slash magiclantern. There are perks at all different levels, and you can support us for as little as a dollar a month. Anything is appreciated, and it all goes to help make a better show for us. If you would just like to get in touch with us, you can reach us at magiclanternpodcast at gmail.com. We are on Instagram, Facebook, and YouTube. Just search for Magic Lantern Podcast in any of those venues. We are on Twitter at Lantern underscore cast. And I just wanted to take a second to say thanks to everyone who has shared the show or given us feedback since the last episode. And we got a lot of it because everyone was contributing their favorite discoveries of 2017 in response to our Ants in the Pants episode. That is one of our favorite things about doing that is finding out what everyone else was into this year. And we got some excellent recommendations of stuff for us to track down. So thank you, Andy Wolverton, Maritza Gulin. Brian Sauer, Keith Rich, Jeff Duncanson, Tim Lego, Michael Cannon, RJ Tugas at the website Make Mine Criterion, and the fine gentleman at Fuds on Film. We also got a new five-star rating via iTunes from some nice anonymous person, so thank you for that. We are on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher Radio, Google Play, just about any podcatcher you use you can find us. And if you would like to leave us a rating or review via any of those services, we would certainly appreciate that. And finally, you can find all of our episodes, including supplemental material, at the website magiclanternpodcast.com. And thank you for listening to the Magic Lantern Podcast. And a Happy New Year. <laughs>